Hi everyone. We continue our sermon series through the book of First Peter after suffering glory. This has become a slightly longer and slower walk through the book than I'd anticipated, but at the same time Peter has been addressing all sorts of different topics that have been and are very relevant to the situation in which we find ourselves, and today is no exception. We come today to chapter 3 and verses 8 to 12. Let me read the passage to you. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Since chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter has been telling his readers and us how to live as God's people in an unbelieving society. And he's addressed the various roles that we have in society. In verses 13 to 17, he told us how we are to act as citizens in verses 8 to 25, he told us how to act as employees, particularly in a difficult situation. In chapter 3, in verses 1 to 6, he spoke to Christian wives, particularly those with unbelieving husbands. And in verse 7, he spoke to Christian husbands. And now in the verses that we've just looked at, Peter speaks to us about our role as brothers and sisters in the church. Peter has actually already mentioned this in his letter back in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, but at the time our focus was on other topics in those verses, and so we skipped over them. But we'll look at them again today as we consider the vitally important topic of our relationships with one another. And again, this topic is right on time. South African lockdown regulations change as of tomorrow, and this week we'll be meeting as elders and staff to try and work out the logistics of meeting up together. And when we do meet up, how are we to act towards each other? Well, in these verses, Peter gives us six things that we are to do, and one thing that we are not to do, and one reason why we are to do and not to do. Let's have a look. Firstly, on the do side... Peter calls us to be like-minded. That's the sense of verse 8. Firstly, all of you live in harmony with one another. The word that Peter uses here is the Greek word homophron, which comes from two Greek words, homu, meaning the same as, and phren, which means an inner outlook or perspective which regulates outward behaviour. So being like-minded, having the same mindset. 
Peter has already spoken to us about our minds. He said back in chapter 1, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And in chapter 4, he will tell us, The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Being like-minded, then, means having our focus, our attention on Christ and the things of Christ, his final return and glory. As one writer puts it, Christians find oneness of understanding in the gospel of the cross. I came across a wonderful picture of like-mindedness or unity in a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. Tozer writes this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers, meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. But it's not just a unity of understanding that Peter is speaking about. It's a unity of attitude. Notice that Peter speaks about being like-minded within the context of love and compassion and sympathy. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul speaks about being like-minded in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. One Bible commentator puts it this way, Being of one mind means having a common understanding of the truth, but it means more. When the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it is denied. The like-mindedness that Peter requires manifests the mind and love of Christ. It is precisely willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake that undercuts the misunderstandings and hostilities that can divide the Christian community. That willingness flows from the love of Christ. Another much older Bible commentator puts it this way, the more seriously we take the New Testament, the more urgent and painful becomes our sense of the sinfulness of the divisions, and the more earnest our prayers and strivings after the peace and unity of the church on earth. That does not mean that the like-mindedness we are to strive for is to be a drab uniformity of the sort beloved of bureaucrats. Rather, is it to be a unity in which powerful tensions are held together by an overmastering loyalty, and strong oppositions of race and colour, temperament and taste, social position and economic interest are overcome 
in common worship and common obedience. Such unity will only come when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold on the unity already given in Christ and to take it more seriously than their own self-importance and sin, and to make of these deep differences of doctrine, which originate in our imperfect understanding of the gospel and which we dare not belittle, not an excuse for letting go of one another or staying apart, but rather an incentive for a more earnest seeking in fellowship together to hear and obey the voice of Christ. Secondly, Peter calls us to be sympathetic. Our English word sympathy comes directly from this Greek word sympathes. It means to have a fellow feeling with another person. We're not just to seek the other person's good, but we are to enter into the other person's needs and concerns. In the words of Romans chapter 12, it means to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians 12, it means that if one part of the body suffers, all the other parts suffer with it. I love what one pastor has to say in this regard. He says, people who have true sympathy generally do not say, I know how you feel. Because since they know how you feel, they also know how unhelpful it is to hear someone say, I know how you feel. True sympathy is a fairly quiet, time-intensive, presence-intensive way of being. Thirdly, Peter calls us to love as brothers, or to be more accurate, love as family. Peter has told us in chapter 1 that in his great mercy God has given us new birth into a living hope. We are God's children, which means that fellow believers are brothers and sisters. This was quite a radical command for Peter to give. Remember, as we've seen, that in Peter's day in the Roman Empire, the family was the most important unit of society. It was the building block of society. And Peter is calling on his readers and us to make our Christian community as important as family. Not to neglect our natural families, but to raise fellow Christians to the same level of importance as family members. This concept of family is a real challenge to us in our modern 21st century world. We live in a very individualistic world, and our individualism trumps our commitment to community, so that when we feel our particular needs are not being met by a community, we terminate that commitment, and we go off and we find another community. But I really wanted to encourage us to value the Pinelands Baptist Church Classic Congregation, or whichever church you belong to. This pandemic and our forced absence may lead us to think that we don't need one another. But I would urge you, let's reconnect. And when we do so, let's do it with a real depth of relationship, like family. Peter's main emphasis here is not on the word brother, but rather on the word love. We are to love as brothers. Love for one another is one of the great foundations of our Christian faith. 
Remember how in John chapter 13, Jesus says to us, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And in his letters, the Apostle John gives us the sternest warnings against not loving one another. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Someone once frighteningly pointed out that according to these verses, I really only love God to the extent I love the person I love the least. In our modern world, we tend to think of love in terms of a feeling, but that's not the biblical model. In this verse, Peter commands us to love one another, just as Jesus commands us to love one another. And you can't command a feeling. You can only command an action. In other words, it is possible to love people whom I don't particularly like. However, we need to be careful here because the next characteristic that Peter will give us is in fact a feeling, as we'll see in a moment. A few weeks ago, I quoted from C.S. Lewis in this regard. Let me do so in a bit more length. This is what he has to say about love and action in his book, Mere Christianity. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate, and the more you hate, the more cruel you will become, and so on, in a vicious circle forever. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. If you're not feeling loving towards a brother or sister, start doing them good and see what happens. So to quote First John again, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Fourthly, Peter calls us to be compassionate. I referred to this Greek word a few weeks back. It's the lovely word eusplanchnoi, which refers to our stomach and intestines. 
As I mentioned a moment ago, when we think of love, we speak about our heart. But when the Greeks spoke of love, they spoke about their intestines, because that's where you really feel emotion. It reminds me of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, where six-year-old Calvin asks his stuffed tiger, Hobbes, what is it like to fall in love? And Hobbes replies, well, say the object of your affection walks by. First your heart falls into your stomach and splashes your innards. All the moisture makes you sweat profusely. This condensation shorts the circuits to your brain and you get all woozy. When your brain burns out altogether, your mouth disengages and you babble like an idiot until she leaves. Calvin says, that's love. To which Hobbes replies, well, medically speaking. When you are in love, your heart might skip a beat. That's something you may actually want to check in with your doctor about, actually. But really, you feel strong emotions in your stomach. So Peter is saying here, love with guts. If sympathy means feeling what the other person is feeling, then compassion means feeling for the other person. Remember that compassion is a fundamental characteristic of God himself. In Psalm 103, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And when Jesus came to show God to us, we read on several occasions how he was filled with compassion on various occasions. One of the problems in living in a global village is that our compassion is so easily blunted. Every day we're bombarded with stories of suffering from all over the world. So I listen to a news report about an explosion in Beirut while I eat my breakfast. At lunchtime I read a newspaper article about human trafficking in Thailand. As I eat my supper I'm watching a news report about a hurricane off the coast of America. We get so used to hearing the stories of human suffering that our hearts and minds become untouched. It's quite natural. It's a coping mechanism. Otherwise, our minds and hearts would be overrun. Maybe we need to watch less news. I don't know. We certainly need to grow in compassion for those around us, particularly those within our church family. Again, it isn't something that we can conjure up naturally. As we've just seen, we're to practice love, and that practice will in time lead to feelings of love. Fifthly, Peter urges us to be humble. It's just tucked away there at the end of verse 8. Be compassionate and humble. Here's another secret to getting along with others. I cannot truly love others. Act in love towards them. Begin to feel what they feel. Feel compassion and concern for them if I'm simply focused on myself. In between sermon preparation this week, I was watching a film based on the life of Steve Jobs, the founder and CEO of Apple Computers. It was extremely sad to see how someone who owned one of the richest companies of all time was such a mess in terms of his friendships and relationships. At one point in the movie, one of his best friends, who started out with him all the way back when they were building computers in their garage, comes to tell them that he's resigning from Steve's company. And he says this to him, It's not about people anymore for you. It's about the product. 
worst of all, it's about yourself. You're the beginning and end of your own world, Steve. And it's so small, so sad, and it's got to be lonely. I cannot be sympathetic or love others or be full of compassion if I'm full of myself. Genuine Christian humility comes from two things. Firstly, it comes from a sense of creatureliness. As one writer puts it, we feel that we are utterly dependent on God for life and breath and intelligence and emotional stability and faith and safety and the use of our senses. And we feel utterly fragile and vulnerable in ourselves. And secondly, genuine Christian humility comes from having a different standard. As the Bible commentator William Barclay puts it, the Christian has a new standard of comparison. It may well be that when he compares himself with his fellow men, he has nothing to fear from the comparison. But the Christian standard of comparison is Christ, and compared with his sinless perfection, he is ever in default. Humility doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves. It means that we think about ourselves less. That when we walk into a room, into an office, into our home, into our church, we're thinking to ourselves, how best can I serve the needs of this group of people, of these individuals? To quote Philippians chapter 2 again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And number six, Peter urges us to seek peace. In verse 11, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, and he says that we should seek peace and pursue it. That's such a great phrase. It means that we should aim for peace again and again. Seek it, and if it eludes you, then pursue it. Remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In Romans chapter 14, Paul says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And in chapter 12, he's realistic, but he still says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Well, having looked at the do's in this passage, we move on to the do-nots. It's not clear here whether Peter is still addressing our relationships within the church or whether he's moving on to address our relationships with those outside of the church. Certainly in the verses that follow, that is where Peter's main focus will be. But perhaps Peter places these verses between those two areas, the church and the world, as a tacit acknowledgement that sometimes, sadly, we may experience bad behaviour from our Christian brothers or sisters. And when that happens, what are we to do, or rather not do? Peter says we don't retaliate. Have a look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. 
We've looked at non-retaliation already in this series, and we'll probably look at it again before the series is finished. But just to notice a couple of things here. Peter says that when we are insulted, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to insult in return. He goes on in verse 10, quoting Psalm 34, Whoever would love life and seek good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Peter said to us, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So we shouldn't take the opportunity to insult those who've insulted us either directly to them or indirectly to others about them. Instead, Peter says we are to repay with a blessing. In the Greek world, the word that Peter uses here, euloge, to bless, meant to publicly speak well of someone. That might be one action that Peter is calling us to, and certainly a very good thing to do for others, especially those who insult us. But Peter is thinking here of the Christian and Jewish use of the term bless. To bless someone in biblical terms means to invoke God's blessing upon them. So, for example, Genesis 28, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful. Or Numbers chapter 6, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. It means that we pray for them. We ask that God would do them good. And if they are unbelievers, we pray for their salvation. It's very difficult to hate someone whom you're praying for. There's a story told about Paul Kruger during a very turbulent political time in the history of our country. Paul Kruger had to speak at a political rally where there were a whole lot of troublemakers from the opposition. And as Paul Kruger was walking up to the rostrum, he noticed that one of the chief troublemakers, uh, Mr. Smith, was holding a large rock in his hand. And Paul Kruger reached the rostrum and he said in Afrikaans, Friends, we always begin our meetings in prayer. And this morning I'm going to ask Mr. Smith to lead us, please. And everyone bowed their heads and closed their eyes. And there was a long silence. And then there was a loud thud as a rock was dropped to the floor. And Mr. Smith began his prayer. And then secondly, not only do we ask that God would bless them and do them good, we ourselves turn from evil and do good. Peter is still quoting Psalm 34 in verse 11, where he says, Whoever would love life and see good days must turn from evil and do good. By the way, that's actually a really important summary verse. Notice that Peter doesn't just speak about avoiding the bad turning from evil, he urges us to replace the evil with good. It's a very useful tool in the Christian life. I don't simply try and uproot the wrong behavior or thoughts or words from my life. With God's help, I try to replace those behaviors and thoughts and words with the exact opposite. But Peter here is specifically calling us to do good to our enemies, as Jesus called us to. 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're not just to be sponges who absorb evil and insults. Rather, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we are to overcome evil with good. This past week, I read about a Christian soldier living in a barracks within his unit. And each evening, when he would read his Bible and pray before going to bed, he was ridiculed and insulted by one of his fellow soldiers across the aisle. One night, while this Christian man was praying, this soldier threw a pair of muddy combat boots at him. The next morning, this hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection by this Christian soldier. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians themselves as a result of watching this man do good to someone who insulted him and did him evil. Well, having looked at the do's and don'ts in this passage, let's look finally at the motivation for what Peter calls us to in this passage. There are a couple of things here. Have a look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. The question has been asked, is our calling to inherit a blessing, or is our calling to return insult with blessing? The text can be read both ways. But you may recall that Peter used this little phrase back in chapter 2 and verse 20, when he said, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So bad news, I'm afraid. If you want to know your calling in life, here it is in two verses of First Peter. It's to endure unjust suffering patiently and to bless those who do you evil and revile you. That's our calling. But the good news is that when we accept and live up to our calling, we are blessed. We don't do these things in order to be blessed. Remember, Peter began his letter by speaking about an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And you can't earn an inheritance. You can only receive it. There's no sense here that we gain a blessing through obedience. But notice that this blessing is not just future, it's also present. Again, looking at the quotation from Psalm 34, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. This is not a promise of an easy life. Psalm 34 and verse 19 anticipates many troubles for the righteous. But Peter also doesn't relegate all of God's blessing wholly to the future. There are blessings right now. The Bible doesn't say that if we do these things and don't do these other things that we will be successful. It doesn't say that we will be admired. It doesn't even say that we will be happy. It says that we will be blessed. Our time is gone. But there is one final motivation and encouragement for us in these verses. Perhaps we look at all that Peter says here and we say, it's too much. I can't possibly do this. I certainly can't repay insult with blessing. 
It's too much for me. Have a look again at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. God sees, God knows, God understands, and he will hear us, and he will help us if we ask him. May God richly bless you in this week that lies ahead as you seek to follow him. Amen.